everyone, I'm Evelyn and I'm Lara. We are the host of Once Upon a Niger podcast where we take you down history lane as we break down stories about people, places and events in Nigeria's past and present. That's right, in every episode we will take you on a journey of our own discoveries as we feed our curiosity and connect with our heritage. Join us to figure out how the chronicles of the past can help write tomorrow's tale. We're back at it again. <laughs> back at it again with time a new goes, episode. Time, time goes quick, boy, when you're having fun. No, we're back, we're back. And it's exciting. I, I really look forward to discussing this particular topic. Yeah. So last episode, uh, we were talking about the film slash book, Half of the Yellow Sun. And we are fulfilling our promise in diving deeper into the topic of the Nigerian Civil War, a.k.a. the Biafran war so yeah here we are so we talked about a film at the in the last episode and i guess it was a very important film that was taken from a book so my question then is if you had all the time to write a book what would you write about yeah that's a that's such a large and expansive (laughs) the scope is wide it's so wide (laughs) it's so so wide i suppose for me i guess at the moment the things that are like on my mind i'm thinking about i'm really like i'm really concerned about you know empathy like compassion joy and delight and how and how that can like help people so I guess if I had, if I had time to like write it now, it would be what my thoughts are like exploring those things, particularly through like the arts. Like I really enjoy like the performing arts, and I think you know, like it's a so it's a very powerful vehicle. For... Would you be like Would you be like a storytelling, like a fictional work? Ooh, would it be? I don't know. My initial thoughts were no. It was just about like my musings, maybe like a series of essays or something like oh, that, like a diary kind yeah. of. Yeah, not even necessarily a diary. Maybe a bit, slightly more like, you know, researched. But now that you actually raise the fictional thing, maybe, 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 maybe you can infuse it. Yeah, and you, if you had all the time. I already wrote a book. Hey! Drop that! (laughs) Drop it! (laughs) Nigerians of interest. You can find it on Amazon. Well. But if I had, if I could, I mean, I've always wanted to write. That's the thing. I grew up writing stories and stories and stories. And then then there was a time when I just stopped for a long time. And I'm only just starting to get back into it in a more fictional way. When I was growing up, I was always writing stories about like magical worlds and like, mm. like witches and wizards. And I think a lot of that was informed by like, not just Harry Potter, but also like Nollywood. Just mm. a lot of, you know, all that stuff. But a more kind of like sophisticated wizardry and kind of okay. stuff. But I, in recent times, obviously I'm never going to write about which is a wizard. I don't think I will do anymore. But in recent times, my interest is really more about... So actually history, but in a, in a very fictional kind of way, in the way that Chimamanda Adichie has done it. I also want to write crime fiction. Okay. Because I really love Agatha Christie. Ah. And Agatha Christie's Poirot is one of my favourite 
detective crime yeah. fiction so I, I i would really like to like set myself apart as a african crime because i don't really think we have a lot of african crime writers no there's... there might be i'm sure there probably is but because i know like there was this um my sister yeah I was my say... sister the, the killer or something what was it called I haven't read it. Yeah, the but... cover is of this black woman. I think she's wearing like sunglasses or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the the, the book. Yeah, that you're about or you come brave work. I think that's yeah. her name. I'm not sure. Um, so like crime fiction, but the the other thing I'd like to write is a political book where it's infusing like I'm telling a story about the political landscape mm-hmm. of Nigeria, but in a very dramatic kind of way, like in a fictional kind of way. But it's actually, have you watched? Not scandal, but like scandal, right? Okay. But it's telling a story about like so the White House, the wa- the halls of the power, halls of power. Okay. But I don't want to give my ideas away, but I'm sure someone else has thought about it. It's, 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 the, it's the execution. It's the execution that it's matters, execution. isn't it? There's yeah. never two of you saying so, yeah. So lots and lots of things I'd love to write about if I had all the time in the world. If you had all the time in the world. Okay. Okay. But seeing as we don't have all the time in the world (laughs) (laughs) and we are not writing a book, but we are discussing Biafran War in this episode. So I'll just give a quick synopsis on what the Biafran War was. So it was essentially a civil war that happened in Nigeria from July the 6th, the 6th of July, 1967. And it ended on the 15th of Jan, 1970. So most people say it was a three-year war, but it was like two-and-a-half-year kind of thing, Mm -hmm. if you want to be technical about it. So the Biafran War was a fight between the government of Nigeria and what was known as the Republic of of Biafra. Essentially, Biafra was a secessionist state that came out of Nigeria, mostly, mainly the... Igbo people, the Igbo tribe from mm. the eastern part of Nigeria, they they declared their independence from Nigeria for quite a few reasons. So, let's go back to history. When Nigeria gained its independence from the United Kingdom, we know that there was there's a colonial history. We were yeah. colonized by the British, and there was a federal constitution that divided the country into three regions. So you had the south the southern region the eastern region and the northern region and we know that the british people through indirect rule gave a lot of power to the hausa fulani that were mostly in the northern parts of nigeria the yorubas were in the southwest and the igbos were in the in the east mm-hmm. eastern part of nigeria now a lot of events occurred in between the time that from 1914, actually, when Nigeria was, what's the word? Amalgamated. Amalgamated, because you're bringing together all of these different tribes, you know, from a very large landscape across the regions that we now know as Nigeria. But obviously at the time, it wasn't called Nigeria. Yeah. You brought all these people together and you made them one. And there was a lot of just differences, fundamental differences, differences in terms of their, their, their views their values, their beliefs, and just how they operated. And trying to make them one country, obviously, was going to have some some difficulties. And a lot of these difficulties started to transpire following the independence of Nigeria. And so we 
step into a moment in history where the Igbo people from the from the eastern part of Nigeria said enough is enough mm. we want to be independent we want more power and what we're going to find out later in this episode is why they wanted to be independent mm. and so on and so forth yeah so that's like yeah the summary of sort of why or like how the the, the war came to be and i think the reason why we're talking about it today is to yeah as we've mentioned before, bring this story to the forefront. You know, you mentioned in the last episode that it's something that has been forgotten. It's something that people don't want to talk about very often. And I think that we need to, especially for our generation, uncover those stories. Um, And not just uncover the stories, but explore the, the meaning of them and what it means to people. And it... Yeah, today is just a opportunity to to do that and hopefully offer, offer some insight and obviously like whet people's appetite to to learn more yeah. about what happened and what we can do to prevent like such a tragic event happening again really. So from your from your research and from your own studies of the Biafran of the Nigerian Civil War, which is also known as the Biafran War, what do you think were the reasons for the war? Because what I found is that that there are so many reasons that people prefer. But what do you what have you found or established as the reasons why Biafran War happened? So you already touched on it a little bit, you know, 1914, you have this creation of a a country of hundreds, like hundreds of tribes who um, wouldn't have come together um, for any other reason apart from the British forcing it upon them. And this leads to lots of like divisions between the people. So you've got this, this forcing of people together that causes a lot of like political and ethnic tension because people are trying to vie for power and be influential. So that's 1914. You fast forward to 1960, we, Nigeria gains independence. Again, that's another opportunity to, to vie for power. And the, 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 the powerful and the elite are mainly northerners. So it's, continu- it's reinforced, continue into what's supposed to be, you know, self-determination, but you can think in many ways actually it's a continuation some may argue that it was a continuation of keeping northerners yeah because essentially power. the yeah because the british put the northern elite in political positions because they were more amenable to to the british rule and they had more to gain really so when and even the nigerian the fight for nigerian independence you can tell because the British did not, the, the Northerners did not really want an independent Nigeria. And so you would find that the four, the, the forerunners of that were the Yorubas and the Igbos. So the names that would usually come up of people who were the fighters for the independence would be, you know, you have the likes of Ransom Kuti, Inamdi Azikwe, and, and a few others. Mm. And I think a key thing to, to highlight as well is even the way in which Nigeria was amalgamated. So you, you had the Northern Protectorate that didn't actually really engage or didn't even want like Christian minister, uh, missionaries who had come, right? So like, in, you know, do, they had nothing to do with the North. So you have the Northern part developing in a completely 
different way to the way the the southern part of Nigeria was developing and a lot of people in the south they would send their children abroad to be educated so you've got different philosophies Mm -hmm. and like viewpoints about the way people should organize themselves Mm -hmm. you know you have a more autocratic form of governance in the north whereas like with the Igbo people it's far more democratic uh, democratic you know everyone's involved in the decisions that are made um, in politics you know that that's just how the tribe functions so you have these yeah these very different ways and then in the yoruba people you have like a mismatch of rulership because they had Mm. their kings and i don't know what you would call it now but it was also a different form of leadership that they had so you're bringing this essentially three different ideologies if we're looking at just the the major tribes yeah they were the they had more of the population if we looked at just them not to speak of all the smaller the other smaller tribes the minor tribes so yeah that would have definitely been quite a quite a task yeah so that, that's that's the backdrop that's the the context for all of this and then these things are obviously exacerbated by the discovery of oil the adoption of corruption with within government and we've we've got independence then we fast forward to 1966 and a major thing happens where the a coup occurs so we've only and we have to remember that nigeria is what six years yeah. old at this point and a first coup occurs and it's it's mainly with evil plotters and they they are stating that this this coup is happening because we want to wipe out corruption mm-hmm. right in the government and some major major figures in in nigeria's history are killed and they're northerners mm-hmm. right and so there's it's so this was so the major people were people like sir tafawa balewa yeah i believe who was also a northerner i think there was a yoruba man who was killed i'm not sure if it was obafemi um, akintola i believe it was and um, he was also a leader from the yoruba from the yoruba tribe and like you said the funny th- well the interesting thing is the fact that there was no Igbo casualty no Igbo man was killed mm. in that and because because it was the army created the coup right mm. but and so it just there were the five main people there were, there were five main leaders in the coup um but four of them were Igbo and I, i'm not sure what tribe the other person was from so essentially it became a Igbo an Igbo versus northerner to to simplify it yes it become that's the dynamic yeah. now of this national tension mm-hmm. and so that happens and and like when you really think about the implications of that this is nigeria's only six years old you know this is the context of the 60s you know decolonization is happening all across the continent there's so much change like people's viewpoints around the way even like gender um you know it's happening so much change is going on and then you have this major disruption in in nigeria's kind of trajectory of democratic rule so but I, I find it also interesting that already six years into our birth as a nation there's already 
fight against corruption, which we're still fighting, mm. 67 or 8 years into our existence, we're still fighting it. So the fact that the corruption was so strong that a group of people already felt marginalised because the corruption was so strong because the the Awusu people had all the power. Mm. Um, you know, it was a federal, it was a federal state which made that power was really concentrated in a particular, in just one place. And pe- the, the people could not really, they didn't have much control of the resources that were coming from their own state. So we really need to picture the motivation for why this was happening. It wasn't just so much like, oh, it was just corruption. It was impacting people. They felt like their growth, their development as a group, as an ethnic group, as a people, as a, as a society was really being impacted by the way that those in power were. And they were flaunting the wealth in their face and there was actual like outright corruption and just, you know, just not caring. Mm. And we have to remember the wealth that was coming from the country you know it was in the region where the the Igbo people are based you know like that that area where they there's a strong contingent of them that's where the oil is and like they're not benefiting, benefiting. um from it yeah it's it's all like it's just all adding to the tension the tension and the, the frustration so so the coup happens. So the, the coup happens and then evil people are placed in power, head of states, and then we have a key a key character in well not just character, a key figure in in the, the coup, and his name is Emeka Ojuku, who is made the military governor of the eastern region. And he is going to, as we'll, we'll discuss later on, he'll become the, the de facto leader of the Biafran yeah. Re- Republic. But he is a very charismatic man. He's been educated abroad, you know, Oxford educated, mm-hmm. and he comes from a wealthy background as well. So his father actually benefited a lot from like World War Two, made a lot of m- money. I can't remember what the exact business was, but... He comes from his father was a sir, <laughs> mm. so he so, Emeka is coming from a very like wealthy, privileged privileged background. But funny enough, he wasn't actually in the first coup that happened in nineteen sixty six. He wasn't involved himself, and so to to kind of give an introduction into how he stepped into how he was appointed into becoming governor. I think he, he then became the governor of the eastern region because. He stopped the coup because how did the, the the first coup that happened where the northerners and the whatnot were killed? He stopped the coup. He stopped the coup from continuing in Port Harcourt, I think it was, and then Aguye in Rossi stopped the coup from happening in Lagos. They became notable figures mm-hmm. during this time, and so when the coup ended. He became the governor in the eastern region of of Nigeria, and Aguye in Rossi. I've read that against his, he wasn't seeking or desiring it, but then he then became, was it the president of Nigeria or he became quite a, he became a leader as well. Mm. Greatness, leadership was, was forced upon him. Forced upon him, yes. And then what happened eventually was then there was a second coup. 
because the northerners were not happy because mm. it then became a oh look at these Igbo people they want power for themselves mm. so the, the 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 sentiment that was starting to go around was oh an Igbo man will always want power wherever mm. he goes because at this time when Nigeria gained independence there was a lot of migration now people were migrating you know going from the east to the south and vice versa and so part of the traits of the Igbo people was that they were very industrious they you know they 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 were very good with businesses and they would create and actually there was a recording that I watched of an interview where one of this a notable figure in Nigeria at the time was saying that oh you know an Igbo man if if he was working in a, on a building site as a laborer he he's aim and ambition would be trying to become the lead foreman mm. you know so there was this kind of ambition that they had that was a threat a perceived threat to to the northerners in particular and so when Aguin Rossin that became the leader of Nigeria as it were the northerners then another coup then happened mm. the second coup and and I think you know in in nineteen sixty six and and sixty seven it's it just have a series of like coups and counter coups yeah. you know between these tribes and then a significant event I feel was like really sh- what sharpened and accelerated the onset of the war was when evil people in the north there was a coup and 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 that uh, stoked up anti evil sentiment. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Igbo people were killed mm-hmm. or had to flee the northern regions. Mm-hmm. I think so. From I think it's from like one hundred and fifty thousand to three hundred thousand Igbo people fled um, to the southern and eastern regions because of this, and so it was a traumatic, terrifying ordeal. And it's it's this it's in this moment that the Igbo people are like no like enough is enough we're not having it we're not we're not having it anymore like how how long must we suffer like this so then there there are attempts between the the competing sides to address the 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 frustrations before we get to the attempt for, to address the frustration, so we, we've talked about Aguirre and Rossin becoming leader, but then, as you mentioned, there were a series of coups and counter-coups, and then there was another coup where Aguirre and Rossin was then killed, not long into his leadership, actually. Mm. And then in this counter-coup, General Yakubu Gowon then became leader. And this is when the ongoing tension from you know the ongoing demand and request from the Igbo people then came to a bit of a uh, bit of a halt or a loggerhead and mm. they had to address the matter and yeah so they attempted to address the the matter in a neutral place in Aburi in Ghana and these these talks the outcome of essentially failed what i find what i find really interesting from my research and i i i had a moment here because so yakubu yakubu one invited ujuku to um aburi a neutral place a few other political leaders were there and the general consensus was that yakubu one did not really take this meeting as seriously as Ojuku took the meeting. Mm. So Ojuku went to the meeting with like his advisors, you know, 
other leaders within his his area and they went there with their demands they were ready i think he had a lawyer and mm-hmm. all of this stuff and i guess yakubu just kind of thought you know let's have a chit chat mm. let's let's gentlemen's club kind of agreement kind of thing but they had demands and some of the and so he came very prepared for the demands from the eastern region and in in order to de-escalate the tension that was brewing some of the requests that they were making was they they wanted greater political autonomy they asked for greater control over the oil revenue from the southeast oil deposits and they also asked for the restructuring of the nigerian army in a way that kind of devolves power to different regions and got rid of the unfair quota because at the time there was a quota that meant that the, the the northern the northerners had a disproportionately large number of their people joining the Nigerian army so it's reflected then in the leadership and a, a, a large number of the army was made up of northerners so I guess they left the meeting Ojuku thinking Yakubu they Whatever happened, there was a belief on a strong belief on Ojuku's part that the agreement that their request had been agreed and that they had what they wanted. But then Gowon, Yakubu Gowon had a different I guess he had a different <laughs> he had a he different didn't, he didn't read that meeting the way others you know, read that. This meeting. is why sometimes I'm thinking, you know, when I was reading when I was looking into it, I was like, I hope when they go into the meetings of the Chinese people and they agree all these things they're agreeing. I hope they oh, know what they, I hope they know oh, what they're Lara. actually agreeing. No, it's true because Lara, 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 Lara please. <laughs> hey. Look, for me as a I don't even know if they signed the contracts, but I think from that from that meeting there was something called the Aburi Accord, and it was meant to be the documentation of the the agreement that they'd made there, which obviously General Yakubuga one was not going to honor. Mm. And then, so what happened when they got back to Nigeria? Well, he went to divide Nigeria into twelve states, mm-hmm. and you know. Th- some of these states, there are three in the eastern region, and Ojukwu was the leader of that. Essentially, what Gowon did was he, he created this 12 states, American style, federal, you know, mm. federal state. But the issue is that unlike America, the, each state had very little autonomy. So you've created this old federal, federal kind of system but the people don't have control over their own resources. They, they have control over very little. A lot of power is concentrated in one area. And I guess this was the last straw yeah. that brought the camels back for the for the people in the in the southeast. Yeah, so after... so And it, and it wasn't just Ojuku just declaring that no. there, there, was, there was a vote. They, they voted on secession and he declared the, the, the three eastern um, states as... The Republic of Biafra and which is just I'm just trying to think back to what that must have um, been like you know like in in the the film you know Half of the Yellow Sun that moment where it's declared on radio and Odenibo is listening and he's like it's happened it's happened Mm -hmm. you know there must have been all this like excitement and fervor you know but 
we are actually doing this. There was quite a unity about it, mm. it seemed. You know, mm. you very, very often, well, you don't very often find that a group of people will be so in tune with one particular decision. And I'm sure they probably had some dissenting voices or whatnot. And it couldn't be like they, they were all 100% on the same side. But there was a general overwhelming sense of this is what the vast majority wanted and just to give a bit of a timeline from when the Aburi Accord um, agreement happened so the meeting was in January of 1967 and obviously it was a two-day long meeting they came back um Kubugo and did whatever he did by May the end of May 1960 so within five months basically so they were not wasting time mm. you said you were going to do this we agreed this you came and you reneged on your word and now we are going to move so they moved really fast they, they, they declare themselves at the state of biafra and then he immediately cut all the ties with the nigerian army and he became he then became general ujuku the biafran president and commander-in-chief of the biafran army and and that's where you know we've talking spoken a lot about the lead up to this, but I think it's important to preface all of it. This is what like half of ELS on the film didn't yeah do, didn't do yeah didn't do. That's when the war began. Yes, and and at first there were actually some gains by the Biafran Republic, and there was a lot of enthusiasm. People really believed that they could win. But when I was like reading some of the accounts by people who lived during that time. It was a lot of it was a facade as well. Mm. I, I remember reading the account of one man who said that he was drafted um, into the army and just he just finished from university mm. and he had no training. He said he had two days training mm-hmm. and they took him in and he was now supposed to be creating weapons <laughs> to, to fight in a war against Nigeria mm. and. He said that it was just a it was a ridiculous mm. thing like he was not a trained soldier yeah but there was so much enthusiasm enthusiasm and zeal can only take you so far i think there was also like an unrealistic expectation i'm sorry to cut you short i think there was also because what you said is really important because and i think one of the reasons why they there was it was almost like there was very little strategy they had strategy but it seemed like when you think about it in real time you're thinking how did you think you were going to win the war where nigerian had like armored vehicles they had planes they had better funding they had better trained i mean they had they they had better trained army which is where you came from mm. and they had the support of england Right, Ojuku on the other hand, the report is that he was confident that the war was not going to last long. So there was an element of underestimation from his side, I think, where he felt like six months at most the war would be over because he expected, you know, there was an element of surprises where where he thought when Nigeria sees what we're bringing to the table, then they would really know that we are, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're an equal match, but. That obviously clearly wasn't yeah. wasn't the case, and you know the Nigerian government would capture capital after capital after capital in in the Biafran Republic as it was, and eventually it took their main source of income in taking control of the oil 
in the region and that's when the starvation really began to 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 take hold because there was a blockage of of delivery of Mm -hmm. food and stuff so they blocked the air like the what do you call it the sea travel the roads were blocked the Mm. sea was you know blocked in quote even the airways as well so it was really difficult to get anything into the region that was biafra and yes this was where the hunger (laughs) began yeah and hunger was weaponized hunger was weaponized in a way that it killed more people than bullets actually did and it was reported that at least so the different figures but it will be like in a very um conservative number is that about at least over a million people including children died I was reading on on YouTube a comment in on a video where this man talked about how he lost his dad lost his his father his brothers his uncles his like he literally lost his entire family and it was only his mom that was left his dad lost everybody five children and it was only later that his parents then had another child and he was the the person who wrote the comments is the child Mm. only child of the parents after they'd lost five siblings so you think of even the impact till today like people living with the tragedy the trauma Mm. the impacts of that war apart from the people who died but even the long-lasting impacts of it but yeah no no it's really it's really it's really intense and i think you know after i you know read the um book half of the yellow sun and started investigating more into the stories that people have told i i tried to like find other sort of like ordinary Igbo people mm-hmm. and then like, i came across community of Igbo diaspora people in the uk and they they yeah basically they, they they go on this mission to to try and promote the culture and, and knowledge of not only the war but just the, the culture of the Igbo people and listening to some of the stories of the young people who are born here and they have parents or grandparents who experience that you can really sense it's like it's what's the word they've really inherited like the trauma and the anger and the frustration from from their parents which is understandable because you know it was terrible what happened and i think that's one of the the legacies yeah of of the war in the way that you know when when a nation refuses to speak about it, it, it and, and in many ways and for many reasons it's intentional why it's not spoken about as often as it needs to be that is going to cause the people who experience this suffering to shout even louder about what happened. And just to kind of quickly go back a little bit into the war and just how he was sustained for so long, because, you know, like we've mentioned before, it lasted three years, something that was meant to be relatively short and sharp. Uh, You know, Ojuku noticed that there was no Nigeria was not going to surrender anytime soon. Yakubu was not going to was not going to surrender, and I think that it was sustained for quite a while because you think why were people following? You know, one year into the war, 
you think people will start by the time people start turning back from him and stuff then it will become quite clear that this is you're not going to win this war but france apparently had an interest in the state of Biafra and the French president at the time was supporting and had said that, you know, Biafra was a just and a noble cause mm. and it eventually started to supply them. So it wasn't that so while they were whilst they were ill equipped at a time, they also started to get support internationally. And internationally and they were getting, you know, he su supplied them with weapons and he tried to smuggle food for them after the blockade had happened and everything. And so France became somewhat of an indirect reason for why the war lasted mm. as long as it did if you may and also eventually the, there was also like an international outcry and one thing i i discovered was that there was a student in america i don't know if you if you saw this he was a student of university of Colum of the of columbia university his name was mayrock bruce mayrock and due to the protest, so he was protest. People were protesting about this, right? Because they started to use a language of genocide, actually. And he was protesting in front of the United Nations headquarters in New York, and he set himself ablaze in protest. Oh, self-immolation. And he actually died the next day. So just to think, going back all those years, these people, somebody died. <laughs> on, a, on another side of the continent for this cause so it did have a bit of international outcry and i think the language of genocide sometimes people say don't call it the biafran war call it the biafran genocide mm. even just the same way um what's this country where they had a genocide as well <laughs> there uh, have been many uh, there's been many i know right so but interesting to know that there were certain countries that recognized Biafra as a, as an independent state. So countries like Tanz um, Tanzania, Gabon, Ivory Coast, Zambia, and Haiti, I believe, they recognized um, Biafra for what it was. And I guess eventually, you know, when you have other countries recognizing you, your shoulder starts to go up and, you know, <laughs> and even Biafra had its own currency. So they had their yeah. own bank, the Bank of Biafra. And, you know, when we start to speak of impact, if we're moving on the conversation, the fact was eventually they had to give up, right? Mm. So was it January the 15th yeah. of, 19, uh, of 1970? Yeah. They go on. <laughs> Ojuku gave up. But he fled, but he and he left with some quite fantastic things, <laughs> you know. Like he, he left on a private plane. Mm. Hey, mm. so that's why that's why I raised that wealth thing. Yeah, on, because like this, the way you fl fled, mm. quote unquote, fled, flew. Mm. It's it just raises questions like, so what was really going on? Yeah, like what was really going on? Because you think for a man of your caliber and a man of so much motivation and power that you sustained a, a war for so long you, would, you should have seen it to the end but then could it be like it was scared of the repercussions yeah i'm sure definitely that was you know part of it but i mean to to start something as the, he he you that's know a privilege isn't it because everyone else could not fly to they could not go yeah. to the private plane to to yeah. Ivory coast there's that and then you know the the accounts and the stories of people i read would say that you know this man thought he was jesus christ he mm. thought he thought he could do everything so you know perhaps he didn't take he didn't really understand 
what it was meant. Yeah, what was at stake? What's it meant to run a nation state, Mm. to run a country? Mm. You know, it's it's more than revolutionary talk. Yeah. And and you know, revolution isn't just like one moment. It is perpetual. Perpetual. And apparently one of the ways it also sustained the war was by giving false news of victories on the war front and telling people we're winning mm. the war and this so you're you're galvanizing your people more by telling them that you know there's something happening and you're you're selling them a, a dream basically that was never really going to happen but yeah so you know like you said he fled and he, he was granted asi- um, asylum in um, ivory coast he was there in exile for 13 years before he was then um, pardoned by the nigerian government and he came back home and he returned in 1982 and you can imagine he probably had he had a great welcoming it was still so and this is the thing about people like heroes of the past right you how do you place them in history because some people say oh was it a hero and i started to think was it was it actually a hero was it just a very miss what's the word misunderstood miss, yeah misunderstood or yeah he had good intentions, but his intentions were misplaced or they were not really well thought through mm. or they were not intelligent enough or yeah. something. I don't know, but that is a question. So you've spoken about the legacy of the Biafran War, the fact that people till today are suffering the tra- the trauma, the tragedy, but just even the immediate legacy of the war as well was the fact that after the, after the, the war ended... Economically, the Biafran currency was not acceptable in Nigeria. All the Igbo people who had left Nigeria and they had bank accounts and everything and all that stuff, Nigeria had to change its currency during the war. So their money was no so the Igbo people their money was no longer valuable. So that was so the question now was okay, well, we're not gonna accept your money. It doesn't matter what you had before. They were poor, right? Even mm. the, the affluent and all that stuff. And so one of the ways in which they tried to address this was the, the commissioner of finance, the finance commissioner at the time, Obafemi Awolowo, he had the duty of addressing the solution. And the way that he then did that was that he granted, he gave a grant of 20 Nigerian pounds to all the Igbo people. So regardless of how much you had before, there was no there was no level there was no grading everybody became on the same level so i guess it was just like economically they were disadvantaged and apparently it was also around the same time that ojuku had this indigenization decree which meant that all the foreign companies operating in nigeria had to sell a proportion of their shares to nigerian citizens but you can only buy shares if you have money so it ended up being that it was the affluent northerners and the Yoruba people who were able to buy shares in these companies. And apparently to today, a lot of that wealth can be traced to the fact that these people were able to invest in these foreign companies at the time. So economically, you know, the Igbo people actually took a battering. and But I think they continue to establish themselves and give themselves a reputation of actually being very economically astute group of people. But... It's important that we, we speak about these things and we bring it. And I know there are different conversations happening in different corners about the Biafran war. And we it's important that we also lend our voice and lend our perspective to it as well. They're still fighting for Biafra, by the way. Yeah. So yeah. that's not something we can go without mentioning. Inam Kanun is a leader 
of the IPOB people. And actually, there's a serious thing about the unity of Nigeria at the moment because not only Biafra is now asking to come out of Nigeria, there's also the sex of Yoruba people wanting to come out of Nigeria called the Odudua people. Then you have the Niger Delta region where you've got, you know, they're suffering quite a lot at the moment and you've got the militant, you know, protesters and whatnot also asking for their own stuff. So at the moment, the fact is if Nigeria continues to happen like nothing is happening and whatnot and we turn the blind eye, the unity might not be sustained much longer. So something to think about. You know, the, the government, it's not in the government's interest now to constantly be remembering the war because they don't want these they don't want these movements to to gain too much uh traction so i think today in this episode we've we've spoken a lot about you know what happened during the war some of the immediate the immediate aftermath of of the biafran war and i'm glad that we've been able to share this with a new audience, with new listeners, repeat the truth of what happened because this story needs to be remembered. It needs to be constantly spoken about, you know, in the same way that many European nations always remember the wars and tragedies that they went through in Britain. Every November, people are remembering the tragedies of the war. Mm -hmm. You know, why should it not happen? In Nigeria, why shouldn't we remember the tragedy of a civil war? You know, it's such a painful thing. War is already disastrous, but there's something quite pointed when your countrymen, so-called countrymen, cannot be trusted, you know? Um, and I, th- I think there's a great opportunity for healing. It's very difficult, but... If this one Nigeria project is to continue, you can't ignore exactly such, you know, the elephant in the room. Mm. So I think for me, that's a key thing in in us, you know, discussing this topic and, and sharing and relaying the history. <laughs> you know, the simple the simple act of like remembering what happened sometimes is enough. So guys, thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and learnt a thing or two. Yep, you can find our episodes on Spotify, YouTube, Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to keep up with us in between episodes, you can follow us on Instagram at Once Upon a Niger. You can also find links to some further reading and information about the episode's topic in the show notes. If you want to encourage, collaborate, or as I like to say, support the ministry, drop us an email at onceuponaniger at gmail.com. Bye for now. Bye.